If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, let's start off. Hands up who's used a dating website. Hey, now that's amazing. Hands up who, uh, who has used one or knows someone who has used one. Okay, it's virtually everybody. Interesting, isn't it? I think for, even perhaps five years ago, people would have been perhaps a little bit like that or didn't want to admit it. It's become really mainstream. If you used a dating website, then almost certainly I would have thought you have shoved your information into something which has then been put through an algorithm to link you up with, with other people. There's basically, they're using maths to try and uh, match you. And the subject today really is the extent to which you know, love and sex are things we can sort of rationally and scientifically understand and the extent to which we cannot. And we have three very interesting people to talk about this with us. On my right is Catherine Hakim, who is a social scientist who has put forward the notion of erotic capital, which I'm sure you would have heard a lot about. Uh, her books include The New Rules, and her current position, which she says herself is a mouthful, is profess- Professorial Research Fellow at the Institute for the Study of Civil Society. To my left is Mark Salter, who's a consultant psychiatrist, written a book called Outdoor Psychiatry. Uh, working in a, he works in acute psychiatric wards, and you may have seen him on Stephen Fry's documentary on manic depression. And to my left is Reverend Richard Coles, who's a broadcaster. You may well hear, have heard him on Saturday Live in the morning on Radio 4, and uh, you might have heard him many years ago as a communard. Um, uh, but he's not going to do a turn for us today, I don't Oh, think. if you insist. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get cracking. So the first, the, the, the initial question is we're going to get somehow just three minutes each, and we'll, we will be quite strict on this. You'd have to use your entire three minutes um, just to sort of set out your broad position to begin with, which is, you know, to what extent do you think that our emotional, intimate lives can be sort of understood scientifically and managed rationally. Um, Catherine, give us your sort of positioning statement on this. Well, I'm quite clear that internet dating is the way forward in society from now on. People are very able to think what they are themselves and what they want in a partner. And internet dating and websites make this a much more straightforward, rational, conscious process than it used to be in the old days when people would meet at neighbourhood fairs, parties, through the family gatherings. Um, After that, for a while, in school or at university. After that, for a while, through the workplace. And that was the way people met uh, friends, partners and spouses. But... Now it's the internet, it's through online dating, and it's working very well. It's working particularly well for young people who consider this as completely normal, rational, obvious, what's the problem? But interestingly, it's actually most useful for older people who are divorced, separated, widowed, who are re-entering the dating, mating, marriage market 
uh, at a late stage in their lives, having to relearn all the processes involved, and uh, internet dating provides a method for them, a process for them, to re-enter that market and relearn how to go about it and meet people of like mind who they would never otherwise meet in everyday life. And there, is, there are studies showing that, for example, people who work in the same organization, in the same city, have met online and formed relationships who would never otherwise have met. Uh, I don't know why it is that they're not meeting within the same organization, but there it is. It, they're meeting online instead. And the idea that this is only for ephemeral or sexual relationships is wrong, although that is certainly one part of the internet. Uh, the reality is that people meet marriage partners, both young people and older people, through the internet. And that is testimony to the fact that people know what they, they are and what they offer, and know what they want and seek in a partner. And this is a perfectly rational and workable, feasible way of me meeting new people of like mind and forming relationships that way. Okay, thanks very much. Um, as, as I say, I mean, internet dating is part of it, but I mean, we want to bring in other things as well. Don't be limited to that, but feel free to speak about that or something else. Um, Mark, to what extent? Rational, something we should um, scientifically understand? Sure. Well, what I've just heard doesn't really seem to chime with the title of the debate, but just sticking with um, uh, my take on it. I mean, can you hear the drums, Fernando? There was something in the air that night. The star's so bright, Fernando. Notice how love distorts our perception of our surroundings. I'm too busy thinking about my baby. I can't think straight. Love clearly has its capacity to disrupt our rational faculties, at least to think and to organise. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably one of the greatest, most famous lines in the, in the whole of the piano pop music. Birds do it. Bees do it. Even educated fleas do it. It clearly is fundamentally biological. It's not just humans, but all life forms that seem to have this capacity to form these powerful, heady, love-driven relationships. And it lasts forever. Or rather, it's enduring. It appears to dominate behaviour long after infatuation has passed. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within its bending sickle's compass come. Clearly, whatever love is, it's many, many things, and not just erotics or something you can do with the internet. It's something that's fundamentally human, fundamentally animal, Fundamentally profound, not just in terms of distorting our reality. Yes, it almost fulfills the criterion for a delusion. An unshakable, seemingly false belief held with total conviction in spite of utter evidence to the contrary. I'm in love with a horse's head. But the fact of the matter is that it is a fundamental part of what it means to human beings and always will be. And no matter what the internet throws at us, it may throw at us a way of finding a few more needles in that five billion person haystack. Human love will always trump whatever anyone throws at us because it is not rational. It is fundamentally, beautifully, wondrously animal. And science, thank God, is never going to explain that. Okay, well, we've got stuff to work on here. Richard. I think it was Richard Feynman said that for all the extraordinary power of science, 99% of the universe would remain forever unknowable. Wearing this collar, I'd make no greater claim. I really would. I'm absolutely with you about the kind of extraordinary power of the unknowable mystery of another person that lights us up and gets us out of bed in the morning, or indeed keeps us in bed in the morning, perhaps. <laughs> I have an unusual take on this in the sense that um, uh, in the 1980s when I was in pop bands, we were absolutely writing the soundtrack of that kind of experience. The pop band I was in, which was an out gay pop band in the days when that was still quite confrontational and difficult, it was also not only the thing that didn't get you out of bed in the morning, but it was the thing that got you on the barricade. It was about identity. It was about seeing some justification for your existence through a declaration of who you are and who you wanted to love. And that came almost with divine sanction. It was not something you had to construct or think about or imitate or whatever. It was simply a given in your life, the great mystery of love and attraction. Skip forward 30 years, <laughs> and I find myself now looking at it in one sense no differently. I am still staggered, surprised, knocked over, amazed, and sometimes awed, and a bit frightened by the extraordinary power of love, as Carol Decker so beautifully put it in Tapal uh, all those years ago. But as a sort of officer of matrimony now, one of my jobs now is trying to adapt that, seeing ways in which that can be adapted to a framework which endures the intensity of the present moment, trying to find a way in which you can 
honour that, acknowledge that, sustain that, and yet do so in a way which creates patterns and forms which do not themselves collapse when those initial passions have burned themselves out. How do you sustain a life of love through the all-too-pragmatic and sometimes withering disappointments of living life among other people where you have to tailor what you wish against what they wish, where you have to advance your own cause against the causes of others in the world? The irony is, of course, that now... Now, I look back to those days when I manned the barricades when we thought of love as this great justification, an army of lovers who would create a whole new way of being and discover that that army is now turning up at my door and saying, well, we'd quite like to get married too, actually. Um, and congratulations to the people of Ireland for having voted so decisively on that only last week. Part of me is glad about that, that we do seek in love to create sustainable patterns of commitment and faithfulness. I think those are good for individuals. I think those are for the good of society, as the marriage service puts it. Part of me, if I'm truthful, slightly misses the days when it was a renegade and subversive force in life too. The debate. Theme one. Okay, well, we've got some, I mean, we've got the outlines here of what actually love is. You mentioned it as something which is beautifully irrational, and Kathleen's talking about something which you can find online. But let's just try and be a bit more specific. You know, what for you is love? And is, is it real, or is it just some kind of fantasy or delusion that people put themselves through um, on the way to something less exciting? Um, Catherine, I mean, how do you, it, <laughs> what is love? Is it real? One of the interesting things is what these men have been talking about is lust. Lust (laughs) is what starts relationships, and in the Western world we call it love because that makes it more romantic, makes it more socially acceptable, but actually it's lust, and lust, all the sex surveys show that it will last roughly, in, a, in its most vigorous and uh, glorious stages, it will last the first three years of a relationship. And after the first three years of a relationship, it starts to attenuate because uh, boredom sets in, I'm afraid. And so then you have to rely on some kind of social relationship which will bind you together. In some societies, that will generally be children. Uh, in other societies, it will be, an, for example, the arranged marriages that you have uh, arranged, made sure that both parties have a lot of things in common. Um, but uh, if you look at studies, even in the Western world, the majority of people who choose partners are choosing partners who are very similar to themselves socially and economically, and so they're not so different from arranged marriages. But What we talk about in the Western world as love is actually lust, mostly, which is an essential foundation for a long-standing relationship, but the long-standing relationship will work if there are a lot of other things in common. And uh, we uh, confuse the two, merge the two, conflate the two, but they're really quite separate. Uh, Can I just get some clarification? Are you saying that there is no such thing as love, just lust and friendship that comes afterwards, or does love fit into this pattern of a long-term relationship at some point? It's the Western label for lust. But if you take that away, there isn't anything else. What what do people have after after the first lust has died down? The internet. You have a solid solid working, long-term social relationships really? or marriage. So it, people in this audience who think they love their partners after three years... That's uh, the Western label for it. Right, OK. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when I started out, I did not say, shake for me, girl, I want to be your backdoor man. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite careful not to use that, because my love for my He's mum... He's a human jukebox. My, yeah, yeah. No, but my point is that, you know, writers ever since the great bard himself cannot be wrong. I clearly said that love is not time's fool. It endures. It lasts forever. And that's long after the red nose painting and whatever you call it is gone, you know. I mean, I couldn't agree, disagree with you more. I mean, that, that lust has very little to do with most of the versions of love that we've been talking about, I've attempted to define thus far. Um, Richard, I mean, Vicar talking about his sex life, I know it's way TMI, but there you go. <laughs> I would say that, I mean, I kind of agree with you, because the, the, the fires of lust do burn bright but burn short. But I would say that the love that endures between me and my partner, for example, is still something which happens between two embodied corporeal people. Um, different shaped differently, changing all the time. He's 15 years younger than me, it's almost unbearable, but there you go. Um, <laughs> 
But it is embodied, it is embodied and it is intimate and that's something which continues and endures, although the framework of the relationship is much more in line with the second part of the scheme that you were setting out there. But it doesn't mean the total abandonment of the first. That physical uh, intimacy is still very much, I can't believe I'm saying this, it's still very much um, part of it. I don't think that's something that no longer endures in the relationship as it changes and reforms now. Well, it's an interesting thing that's come out because I think people often do try to or want to distinguish between lust and other things and like try and you know, be that world weary cynicism, which is to say, you know, ah, oh, you know, it's just lust and you'll get over it kind of thing. Or, or just kind of say that, you know, sex is just sex and then love is something else. So they're not connected. And I, I, I seem to have different uh, views on this. But I mean, so just, I mean, I'm just trying to follow up, actually. I don't think we've exhausted this yet. But um, how are you responding to what you've heard there? Do you just think that these poor men are deluded or what? No, I think the Western world has built up this wonderful. Uh, intellectual, ideological, artistic uh, culture that transforms lust into the notion of love. But the research evidence is that lust is an essential first step towards forming an enduring relationship, which is fine. Call it love. That's no problem. Uh, But that's not what's happening. What is happening is initially uh, a solid foundation of lust which is fulfilled, and on that basis you have a relationship which might endure. So, Catherine, does lust make you log on? Yes, yeah. the desire for that kind of intense, physical, and, in the Western world, romantic relationship, yes, it makes you log on. Of course it does. Why not? One I want to follow up on, but the first one, you are saying it's a Western thing. Is, is it not true that in non-Western cultures there are love poems and love stories and love myths? Well, why, why are you so sure it's a, it's a Western idea? Because the research evidence is that although the notion of love doesn't not exist elsewhere, it's usually understood as what it is, which is lust, I'm afraid. It's interesting that we're hearing... A so- I'm very conscious in the frames of the questions you set it out, Julian. We're hearing a social scientist talk social science, of psychiatrists talking a different kind of model of human identity, and a parson on the end talking yet another one. We come from three different disciplines. We capture the evidence in a different sort of way. Evidence is universality, surely. I mean, what about 15th century love songs in Urdu, the guzzles, that are so full of must this delirious sense of infatuation that is only partly lust. It's, it's about that as the way through to something. That's certainly very unwestern. Goethe is happening in 1770, the sorrows of young Werther. He blows his brains out for love. Well, is that not part of the Western world? The, the guzzles of the Urdu. Are you saying that South African or Japanese or Tibetan? Well, bung those in too. I'm sure they've got their, their heady love poems. But, I mean, but this, this, you say we're talking as people with a particular background. So let's try and talk as people who are people who have had experience, right? Um, does I've lived your... a very sheltered life, Julian. Does... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, sure, OK. <laughs> I'm sure on the road with the communards was just like, you just played chess all day or something. Anyway. <laughs> Kind of but, like <laughs> but, but does this speak to our experience? Because I think the challenge is that almost that if we are honest and we look back at our own relationships, we will observe that what first drew us to someone was lust, and if we stayed with them, it was for something else. Now, is that a description of either, if you don't want to talk about your own experience, but you don't have to be confessional, or people you've seen, is that an accurate, an, you know, an honest description of what's going on? Or is it more complicated than well, that? Well, I think it tells us something that's true. I was just very conscious of you talking about it. In the, in the days when I was in the, in the communards, um, in our first flush of success, all of a sudden I found my, uh, what I brought to the party considerably enhanced by the success. I was a swatty kid with glasses who all of a sudden had a number one record. It does wonders for your sex life. And I found that um, one of the things that I acquired was a lovely boyfriend who was a model for Jean-Paul Gaultier, OK? He was a very handsome skinhead from Dunkirk. Anyway... That was a wonderful thing. Hurrah, I never thought that I would ever go out with a model from Jean-Paul Gaultier. And we dated each other for about 18 months before the realisation hit both of us that we actually didn't like each other very much at all. But it was just that pop stars dated models. It was a kind of form of thing of what you did. And he was a perfectly nice chap, and I think he thought I was a perfectly nice chap. But once the realisation dawned that actually those ingredients, whatever they are, mysterious, some less mysterious than others, that contribute to a relationship that has um, a lasting and enduring form 
the shape in which both people can change and grow and get rich, you know, that kind of thing, um, where we sort of parted on wiser and better terms as a result. I just think it was just of the moment. It seemed a good idea at the time. I mean, I think lust is a word that carries a lot of, you know, sort of drooling lasciviousness as part of it. You know, it's, a, it's some sort of slightly grubby force that's motivated towards the end of getting your leg over kind of thing. But for me, the word lust is fascinating because it, that sheer emotion that underpins the word tells us something that Cole Porter was trying to say. It's fundamentally part of what it means to be alive, whether you're an educated flea or an educated human being. And what you've really got there when the lust happens, frankly, the, the, the westernized part is an epiphenomenon. What we've got is a profound biological process, half a billion years in the making, that guarantees that we all keep on doing so. And sometimes exploring you know, the, the science, as it were, behind that can give us some quite fascinating insights into the way we do things. Yeah, but it's interesting about the biology. I think there's some agreement, perhaps, uh, some of you about that the biology is important. It's a biological thing, but... Isn't that potentially overstated as well? It's not just biological. Well, it's, it's, it's just biological because, you know, put crudely, who, who you fancy, who you find yourself being turned on by, is that just a sort of an automatic biological response? Or is it actually, sometimes at least, to do with the whole person and not just, you know, what the hip to whatever, thigh ratios or whatever? I mean, is it, don't, how do we understand the way, the way lust works? Isn't it actually tied in with all the, the wholeness of the human experience, personality as well. Is there not such a thing as a sexy personality? People have been reacting negatively to the term lust. If you call it sexual desire, sexual appeal, then it becomes something somehow more socially acceptable. And yes, the first initial 30 seconds reaction to any person that you meet, you clock their age, their sex, and how their sexual appeal either speaks to you or doesn't speak to you. And those are the three things. In America, race comes into it as well. But those are the things that happen within the first 30 seconds of meeting any complete stranger. And we're not conscious of it because it happens so fast and it's so ingrained, so subconscious, that we think we're reacting to the fact that they then had a nice accent and spoke well and they were educated and we had interests in common and whatever, whatever. Actually, we have very instinctive, subconscious ways of reacting to people as soon as we meet them, and we classify them in all sorts of ways, socially, economically, physically, biologically, whatever you want to call it, but one of them is sex appeal. And it matters not whether you're already partnered, married, or whatever. Every time you meet someone new, whether it's of the opposite sex if you're heterosexual, or of the same sex if you're uh, homosexual, you instinctively clock whether they are sexually desirable or not. We all do it all of the time for the whole of our lives. But you say but the, 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 the pure sexual desire, the biological instinct, is, you say, just one of them. And people, I'm sure, have had the experience of, of meeting someone and sort of having that sort of like wow moment, and then as soon as they hear them talk or something, suddenly they're not remotely attractive at all, right? <laughs> so it seems that, you know, what... It, there is, it seems that... It, it, I suppose I'm just trying to sort of get to the sense that... There's, I wonder if I'm, I'm worried that we're separating out too much the kind of the pure biological animal sex appeal from these other things which go on. And in fact, you know, what we call lust, sex, whatever you call it, it actually does involve more than just brute animal instincts, doesn't it? Or not? Can we widen this out a bit? I mean, what about okay. my love for my mate Roger? Okay. You know, I've never ever lusted after him. I happen to be straight and. I think so is he. And uh, you know, I clearly have a profound sense that this man has got my back covered and I his. This man is echoing something in me that says, I've got someone who can behind me who can help me live and survive and do well. That's a very animalistic explanation. But there's that love. There's the love for my country. I love gherkins. I mean, the, the way we use this word, we're narrowing it down. We're asking really here, if I may. Sorry, but... What is it that makes someone interested in a love or desire anything? Not just the, 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 the sexual drive. Well, I hate, to correct you. We, I hate to correct you, but in fact, we're not talking about that in the sense that the, the debate is specifically about romantic love. Romantic love. Things. That's, that's, like, about that is kind of what we're talking today. about. So today, <laughs> you are right. You know, it, is, it is an interesting question why we use the same word for gherkins no. as we use for 
gherkins. But, um, <laughs> um, but you know, but, but that's beyond the scope, um, okay, you know, fair. for another day. But I, I like gherkins. I think, you've, I think you've grotesquely overlooked the pickle of file community there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, I would say one thing that's interesting, and it occurs to me when, uh, when if I'm doing my kind of officer of matrimony job, and you take a kind of step back from stuff, is that you do see that there are elements in which desire is clearly constructed, in which there are other elements that come into simply other than just biological attraction. You see that certain kinds of people tend to pair off with certain kinds of people, and I'm sure data, it's not data, it's just anecdote, but might match the data that you discover, Catherine, in your researches too. You do get a sense that there are choices being made, even if they're unconscious choices, which are not simply dictated by biology, but by habit, by custom, by uh, desires of all different kinds and stripes. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Theme two. Well, look, this leads us into the next sort of theme we want to cover, which is the extent to which whatever we call this, love or lust, is um, within the reach of reason. Because in your opening statements, Mark, you were suggesting that it was like gloriously, wonderfully mysterious, and thank God we'll never be able to understand it. But um, surely, you, I assume you don't think we can't understand it at all. What, what, what is it that we can and can't understand? How, how much is this tractable by rationality? I mean, as a psychiatrist, I don't think we're you know, ever going to get beyond the idea. I'll put it, David Hume was right, you know, that, that, that reason will always be the slave to the emotions. The vast amount of what goes on in our heads is way beneath our ken. And frankly, there are one, some ways of arguing that the way we feel, including how we might like, fancy someone and declare that in the sense of our apparently conscious behaviour, is motivated by phenomena and forces that are working in parts of our brain that haven't changed a lot since we were flatworms or, or since we were, so we say, less evolved forms of life. As a result of which, love, which bubbles up from this fascinating thing we might versely call the unconscious, our instincts, our drives, will always be somehow beyond the grope of reason. Thank God. And we may discover and learn things about the way that, for example, the very animal parts of the brain inform these decisions. But frankly, reason will never allow us... It's not, the brains aren't designed so that reason will never trump feeling. It's the other way around. The vast majority of the words I'm using in each of these words in my sentence are driven by emotion, not by reason. I think that introduces another distinction rather between sort of reason and unreason, if you like, which is in the Christian tradition, borrowed actually from the Greek tradition which preceded it and has influenced everything since, a distinction between eros and agape, between uh, sexual and erotic love, and the love in the Christian tradition exemplified by the covenant relationship between God and God's creation, which triangulates the relationship we have with one another. So instead of just relating A to B, you relate A to B within a relationship with your creator God. Now, whether you're, uh, you subscribe to that or not, it's nonetheless been hugely influential, I suggest, in forming our culture and the way we think about love and how we relate to one another uh, in love's light. Yeah, I mean, I'd Catherine, like to answer that. Instead of looking backwards to the Greeks, look forwards and to today to modern science. It's a Grexit. We cannot <laughs> have any sense of reasoning and rationality without emotion. Emotion and reason are the same thing. People who are brought up without an emotional basis in childhood are unable also to function as rational beings. There is no distinction between the two. You're proposing a distinction between the two which is simply not fair, not valid in the mod and according to modern science to so drop it. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a binary opposition at all. I'd just say they represent two views. Everything that's interesting that happens On between love, them. love, but I'm saying reason and love and, and emotion are not separate things. They're the same thing. Exactly. exactly it's it's the, the way the mind Exactly functions. the same thing. They're, it's... Emotion is absolutely central to the way the mind fu functions in a rational way. Yes, 
You can't have a rational judgment without emotion being part of it. But to say you can't have one without the other isn't to say they're the same thing exactly, is it? Because isn't there a difference between, I mean, you know, if we think, for example, about the, the distinction they talk about system one and system two thinking, there, in certain modes, we act in this hot mode, purely responding to feelings. In other, we, we, rational, we deliberate rationally. Now, it's not like we've got two brains, and it's not like there's no interaction between the two. But there are different ways in which we think, aren't there? And isn't it important to sort of like, allow that there is a distinction between the way we may think something through rationally and the way we may simply respond That's instinctively. a Western idea. That is just a Western idea. Yeah, another Western idea. It's just another Western idea. I mean, idea. you're prisoners of your culture, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a prisoner. Can I, can I give you another Western idea? <laughs> yeah, go on. Okay. Which, and this applies to every thinking, living creature on the planet. Emotion is the force that drives you to have the next rational thought that then defines your next rational act. Every single rational act is under, fundamentally underpinned by an emotional state that bubbled up 300 to 400 milliseconds before it. A spark in a combustion engine of your soul. The ineffable spark, well, yeah. for now, yeah. until we can finally plunge into yeah. the depths yeah. and scan the, 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 the primitive brain. But that's not Western, that's human, that's animal. In other words, emotion drives us to decide what word to use next in every sentence, every thought, every breath. So try to think of it then as rationality is just a thin 1% veneer on the 99% of the emotional feeling creature that we are. And that's wonderful. And sex appeal and sexuality yeah. is a fundamental part of that. A, a small part of it that happens to make a lot of money. Well, it makes an awful <laughs> lot of sense in the context of talking about relationships, which is what we're doing. I'm not sure this is system one, system two thinking, but one thing that occurs to me is, again, is the framework through which you look at it. If you're looking at that as something which offers you the personal fulfilment that you seek, is one thing. But if you're looking at it as something which contributes to the life of a wider society, then that's another thing too. That's another place where Eros and Agape might be useful poles to consider and, uh, or in terms of what happens in between them. And Eros and Agape were only two of some seven exactly. of, the, of the ancient Christian classification, were they not? Oh yes, you name yeah. it, we've got yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah. We've got the basis covered. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a really interesting question about you know, the idea of the relationship between erotic love or romantic love and reason, which is, I think that there's a sense some people have, which if you kind of basically say it's beyond reason, it kind of means there's no way you can have any kind of control or influence over it at all. You are complete, everyone is a complete slave of love and can't do anything about it. Now, it's an interesting thing. Right? I mean, you think of Pride and Prejudice, you know, it seems to be as, as a novel, one of the themes of that, I think, is that there is a difference between you know, different characters always fall in love and they fall in love in different ways, but there seems to be a difference between the kind of falling in love in a completely uncontrolled, completely silly way and falling in love in a way. Way which actually you bring your judgment to it as well. Now, how, how do we understand? Is that, is that just a, a myth or a silly idea? Or is there a sense in which it is possible to be more, how can you say, reason, uh, more reasonable in love or not? I mean, again, you're a social scientist, Catherine, so can people bring reason to, to love in that way? Well, parents certainly hope that they will bring reason to bear on their children instead of uh, reacting uh, primarily to sex appeal and attract physical attraction and lust, if you want to call it that, and say uh, take account of wider social and economic factors so that uh, the people that you actually spend time with are people that we regard as desirable and acceptable rather than people we don't regard as desirable and acceptable. And one of the things that I find most interesting about internet dating and the way it's changing social relationships is that in the past we would meet people primarily through our family or in a wider way through the local neighborhood, which is something determined by our family, or the workplace, again, largely determined by our family origins and so on. Whereas with the internet dating, you can meet people from absolutely anywhere, in any social class, any racial group, any religious group, uh, not even in the same country. And that is something that is completely new and you're finding internet dating is creating relationships across social divides, economic divides that would never have previously happened or had such a low probability that would almost never happen. And it's creating new small communities, of course, of uh, niche markets of people with totally arcane personal interests and social interests, uh, which again would never have happened before because people were trapped in their own local social 
little bubble. But at the end of the day, you've still got to buy a plane ticket. You've got to fly to that little bubble well, out there somewhere if you want to make it really work. They fly to Russia, they fly yeah. to Thailand. And that's not the internet's going to fly, fly to you Japan. there. They do. Really? I mean, so, I my pastoral experience suggests that internet dating has done more to enhance the pleasure of the, 80, of the over 50s than just about anything else I can think of apart from Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> <laughs> But it's it it very interesting that, isn't it, that lots of people, I think, have found a way uh, to having kind of second flowerings, you call it that way, or sort of happens that they didn't know they could have because the internet has opened up access, which otherwise wouldn't have been there because the thought is too appalling to go out and put yourself out on the, oh, in the market, not, as it were, in the old... It's not because the, it's appalling to have to go and put yourself out. It's because the internet is used mostly by young people because they just take it for granted, but it's most valuable to older people because actually you've got a slimmer, shallower market. You've got more, fewer people, more dispersed geographically, and you're not, not going to meet them naturally. But I would also and say... It allows people to meet. Uh, this is not a criticism of internet dating, but I would also say that some of the people who have suffered some of the most degrading experiences that I've come across in pastoral ministry have done so through the internet too, particularly through pornification, something which has had an enormous... I was talking to somebody the other day who, create, who works with uh, people who've been con- uh, charged with offences of downloading... Uh, material on the internet they shouldn't have and he's saying that more and more of the people he's seeing are young men in their 20s who have now become so wedded to accessing porn through the internet that it actually seems there's some evidence that it seems to be in fact changing the way they behave beyond their sexual behavior and that's an, an enormous having an enormous impact huge effect on people and i would say that that's the, the kind of degrading aspects of that is something which i'm picking up too i don't know about you in your professional life i think it's very very true but i mean you know our, our behaviors at many many deep levels have always been amenable to external influences long before the internet came along. The internet just provides a particularly heady, very potent source of that, as it were, perversion or distortion, I think. But, you know, I mean, we were, we were arguing about TV video games and video nasties in the 70s, long before we had the microchip that going to have to deliver that. So there's nothing new there, I don't think. I think what's new is the, it's the intensity of it and the extraordinary mm, that's, that's availability true. of it, the yeah. sheer volume yeah. of stuff yes. that people process. And now. it's fascinating to think about what I'll do in evolutionary terms, you know, thousands or hundreds of you know, longer down the line, the way our, our brains are changing. But coming back to this earlier on, about something like I'd like to mention, you narrowed us down away from love for gherkins and yeah. love for my communards albums yes. and things. But, um, That's eternal just, and enduring. Tell me why. <laughs> but um, uh, but the, the point is that, you know, there is one very important aspect of love. I mentioned earlier on that biology and psychology can throw up some very useful insights. Let me give you an example of something I think is actually germane to this issue of romantic love and lust. And that's this. The most important love, this might sound kind of cheesy, but bear with me, the most important love we can actually really have is to learn to love ourselves. Now, that actually happens in the first five to ten years of life. Look at the higher mammals on this planet. Dolphins, for example, elephants, primates, homo sapiens. Homo sapiens has a period of attachment, dependent attachment to the parent figure, usually the mum, and if you're lucky, the dad, that lasts up to 18, 19 years in our species. In the dolphin, it's 10 to 11 years. They swim with mum for that long. With the elephant, it's about four years. We are such social creatures, in which love plays a huge part, we need 18 years on average before the bird flies the nest. Now, in that time, we learn many things. And early on in life, your mother, if she does a good enough job, will make you feel good about yourself. That feeling good about yourself is the template for good love of others. All successful romantic love and lust, lust for any love for anything, and the ability for that love to weather the test of time. The marriage of true minds actually is informed by the ability to love yourself first. And that tells a lot about how we should think about parenting. It's a biological insight that can make the world a more loving place. I want to go backtrack a bit. It's very interesting stuff you said there, but about this idea of the extent to which love is something that is kind of beyond our control because it's beyond rational understanding. Now, you see people's different people's experiences. There are some people who, you know, get a good match, they have a good relationship, et cetera, et cetera. There are other people who sort of like, you know, it takes two or three goes, but eventually they crack it. There are other people who, are, who seem to be pathologically attracted to unsuitable people and so forth. Now, is it just a pure matter of luck which one of those people you are? Or can you actually, you know, bring your mind to bear on it and improve your chances in some way? Um, do you have anything to say about that? I would add, I agree with what you're saying, but I would add to that 
but it's not sufficient for people to already love themselves to be able to form a relationship. They also have to have self-knowledge and have knowledge of what it is they bring to a relationship. And in some cases, it's very little. In the cases of men in particular, I would argue, it's very, very little. They think that having a bit of money is enough to make them God's gift to women. And actually, it isn't enough. Not in the days when women can earn their own living. And men have yet to learn that actually what they bring to the table to form a a positive and workable long-term relationship has to be a little bit more than the money that they have relied on in the past. I'm just going to ask my and, mate what he thinks of that. And that's something else other than uh, being comfortable with you know, loving yourself because your mother loved you, which by and large is a very much more strong relationship in relation to boy children than in relation to girl children. That's another matter. But men have to learn what they bring to the table. And it's got to be a lot more than money in the modern age because women are bringing a lot more to the table. But do you think that rate of learning is considerably slower than the rate of change, if you see what I mean, that we're lagging behind significantly? Men are lagging behind. Yes, that circumstances have changed so rapidly. Women have developed and changed and modernised. And also our ways of communicating have developed. Men haven't. That is the problem. Yes. Sometimes I think, you know, there are... Let us consider the example of Dante Alighieri, if we may. I'm just very <laughs> struck by the figures in, in Inferno, and I think the second slightly mild circle of hell, not one of the serious circles of hell, you encounter Paolo and Francesca, Francesca de Rimini. You remember who was married? She was a real person in Dante's Florence around the turn of the 14th century, and she had an affair for 10 years with her husband's brother, and they were discovered, and he murdered them. It was a notorious case of the time. Dante encounters these lovers, and is deeply moved by their plight but their version of hell they're in is that they are caught up in a swirl of hot wind which blows them round hither and thither as if slave to that surrendering to that hot wind that's what's consigned them to hell they needn't have done it they could have retained rational choice but instead they surrendered that in order to surrender to desire and that's the reason why they lost their chance of blessedness that would otherwise have been theirs now I'm not suggesting that's an exhaustive account of human relationships but I think even in the 13th 14th century what you're seeing is a sense of that gap between what motivates our desires and how we bring or don't bring into play our thinking, our rationality about those. So, how, how well can we bring those things together then? I mean, well, I think more easy perhaps than than, than, than we think. I mean, I want to say what you describe about male behaviour doesn't chime with my understanding of male behaviour. I see a lot of love and kindness and compassion in men everywhere, and I wonder what it is that makes it invisible to you, or perhaps less obvious. Or perhaps, perhaps I'm deluded. Perhaps I'm in love with the idea of the sensitive new age guy. I did this study of internet dating, and one of the things that came out very clearly from it is that men thought that they were in control and that they ran the show and that they uh, set the rules. And what was very clear to me was that that was simply not the case. It was women who set the rules and women who were in control, and men refused to see that. And I, I just find that I don't very deny we live in a mindless patriarchy, you know, and it's got, it's got serious problems. But I don't think that, you know, that means that men somehow are intrinsically less in touch with their inner loving selves than women are. They may be socially sanctioned to express it in different ways, but boy, it's out there. But I think men have had more work to do, precisely because the status of women has changed so dramatically in the past 50 years. We've had more work to do. And that means we've... You know, just got simply more. They've had to change, yeah. And they're not noticing that the fact that women now have their own, earn their own livings and have their own independence and autonomy, uh, actually has an implication for the kind of relationship that they will have with men. Theme three. Now, I want to turn a little bit more to the, the, the internet specifically. I mean, I think there seems to be broad agreement that people think that the internet dating is a good thing, um, but. Are there downsides? Are there downsides which perhaps internet dating isn't necessarily responsible for, but is reflecting in society? Now, it was interesting, Catherine, you used the phrase, you know, people re-entering the market. And this is an interesting way of of talking about dating. I mean, people used to talk about cattle markets, didn't they? For like, you know, discos where, you know, uh, people would go down there to pick their um, cow, whatever it might be, (laughs) um, uh, and talk bull. Um, So, but, you know... uh, 
is there an extent to which, you know, we're, we're trying to bring a level of control to our romantic lives, which is actually potentially perhaps a bit too consumerist. It's about the checklist of what I want and do you match up to that? And secondly, it's perhaps unrealistic because, you know, we think we can, you know, we think it's within our power to, to find. And also, we think we know what we want. Um, uh, any any thoughts on this? So, yeah, you've got a few. He's got a few. Yeah, got a few more. <laughs> well, it comes back again to, you know, how can science usually involve this debate? I began by warning that please don't let science try to just define or control love. But what useful things can we learn? Okay. There are five, six billion people on this planet. Any one of us is looking for love, perhaps whether or not propelled by lust, has got a big problem on their hands, which is to go in search of that perfect needle in the emotional haystack that is out there. On this planet, there's probably someone who fits you out there. That's a big challenge. Much better, actually, to cut your losses and stick with someone who's relatively nearby you, and the internet gives you a much better reach. The problem is, it also brings with it the temptation in the world where we're bombarded by choice, rich goods, television advertising, that if I haven't got it, ah, I can throw it away and go back to the internet. We're spoilt by too much choice, and therefore, we're admitting something, you know, to the marriage of true minds. It's an impediment. The idea I can click a button, it doesn't work with her, try again, click, I try again, means that sometimes we don't actually stick with what we've got enough to consolidate and take the real risk, which is to go beyond lust, to consolidation. Western civilization is out to lunch on the immediate gratification of the needs of the individual, and I think that the internet can possibly fan that particular dangerous furnace. Interesting, yeah. I think should, well, I just think the kind of the swipe of grinder, which is so much a feature of go. gay male sexuality in media people now, which is that you have it, you can kind of swipe your way through your sort of sh- and achieve your shortlist of people within reach whom you might wish to uh, have a special hug with. <laughs> um, but, but, but I think what, what was, I mean, in my own case, for example, I think kind of coming to maturity in a gay culture, which was very much defined by very narrow parameters about what, I mean, you open a gay magazine and if you haven't got a perfectly sculpted chest which you're prepared to bear to the nations you might as well stay home I'm talking in broad brushstrokes here in fact what you find when you meet someone and fall in love is something much more mysterious than that in which you discover within yourself that all of a sudden comes to light kind of aspects of attraction aspects of affinity that you didn't really know were there kinds of things which I think the sort of metrics and algorithms no matter how subtle and sophisticated they may be with the internet simply don't capture or don't reflect and that's something which I see, I think, more and more, particularly in those relationships may begin that way, using the internet as a point of access. But what it's an access to is actually someone fuller and richer in the mystery of their own humanity. The internet is interesting in that it is giving a lot of people who come to it at the beginning the idea that it's just like shopping. You can just say, this is what I want, tick, 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 and I'm in control, I'm able to choose anything I want and you start to treat people profiles as if you're a shopper and you just choose what you want and it'll come ready packaged in a nice brown paper parcel exactly what you want, the perfect lover the perfect partner and that is I think the key problem with the internet that a lot of people use it as if because the websites suggest that we will deliver your perfect partner to you and they believe that and they try act on that basis but actually all the internet does is provide a sifting device for people that you could potentially meet and the important thing is you have to just meet them in person and then at that point the process of courtship seduction starts or doesn't start and that it's the people making the mistake of thinking the internet will deliver rather than the internet is simply an introduction agency and it's up to you after that the older user is less picky or more picky Um, (laughs) in it's people with enough intelligence to understand how the market works who work it best and who they are and who are very much more honest about what they bring to the bring to the table? That's a very interesting question because there's no doubt about, it from a psychological point of view, that people do tend to become more rigid and fixed in their their worldviews, love included, as they get older. You know, the older you get, the choosier you get, as they say. And that's, that's a fascinating question. But I mean, does your, did your data actually tease that one out? Well, my study was of the people of who are mostly over forty, and who are looking for partners for extramarital mm. affairs. And I chose that simply because it was a clearly demarcated 
specific area of internet but, dating. But the processes were the mm. same as in, I realized after a while, exactly the same as in all internet dating. But with people which is that people come with expectations, which vary a great deal. Some are realistic, some are unrealistic. Some are honest about who and what they are. Some are dishonest and present themselves as, you know, the gods to the world and, you know, incredibly wealthy and uh, successful when they're not, or incredibly handsome or beautiful when they're not. And it's about self-knowledge, it's about realism, and it's about admitting that uh, what you bring to the table is going to help determine what you can reasonably ask Indeed. of others. So, could I ask, I mean, people making applications to the internet and putting it in their specification lists, do the spec lists of people over 40 run to three or four pages of criteria? I, mean, I think women are more rigid than men. Right. The age. That, yeah. I don't think age is the key factor. I, but I, I think I, women are generally much more rigid than men. They have this idea that there's a correct and proper process uh, to relationships, and men are a little bit more easygoing as to how relationships develop. More realistic, in my view, because it's all actually pretty hit and miss and chaotic and unpredictable, and you have to just try. It, but it's interesting when you say that, because I, I, sometimes I like to read those things. Various magazines have versions of a blind date column where they put people together, and the question always ended, would you meet again, and all that kind of stuff. And nine times out of ten, it seems to me, the woman goes, no, nah, not really, not as a friend. And the bloke goes, yeah, there might be something there. You know, <laughs> it, does, it, does, it does seem that the women are very much clearer at thinking, nope, that's not the one. And then, oh, keep the door open. And one last thing about technology before we open it up. Um, which I just thought, thought about now, so it may be a useless question. But one thing technology does is once people are in relationships, it enables, now, is that the right word? It enables them to keep much more in touch. So, for example, I'm away here, my wife's not with me, so, you know, I'll, I'll give the phone, I can send her a text, I can phone her and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that also means probably if I haven't got a text by, you know, X o'clock. I'm thinking. Rrr, rrr. Um, is, is the is the connectivity that we get now? The, the, is that keep, is that making us immature in some ways that we we we're, we're less able just to sort of like leave the person behind or not? You're shaking shaking your head. Well, I will say it says more about you. Okay. About yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah. But you know what's wrong with that? I mean, we're all uniquely, wonderfully independent and different. That's the thing. And you know, I, I, the fact that this connectivity is going to do nothing to change the extent to which, as you say, the metrics and the algorithms, in this case, human nature, half a billion years in the making. That's, that's a pretty wonderful series of metrics and algorithms. You know, God gave us those. You know, mm. well, depending on your definition <laughs> of God. But, you know, it's like, great. So if that's how it works for you, it works for you. And uh, long live the text, the loving text and the little emoticons that you blip to your missus. Oh, uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, is there anything else to say about that or, or not? I mean, I think that uh, people vary hugely. Some mm. people absolutely favour the idea of separation because then when you meet together again, uh, you've got a, a fresh new approach rather than having been permanently in contact while Better sex. I can't tell you how many times I found myself on a windswept moor desperately trying to get a signal to send an emoticon to David at home just to know I'm okay. Okay, I'm not the only pathetic one on the stage. Okay. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.